0: Well, as you can see, we're in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Now, brothers and sisters, for a moment, just think about where we've come from as we're moving into a new section of the book of Romans. What Paul is going to do now is he is going to lay out for us the great hope of glory that belongs to all of those who have, through faith in Jesus Christ, been justified. And so, this hope of glory is now going to be the dominant theme, not just here in chapter 5 but all the way through chapter 8. All right, now, I'm going to begin this morning by reading the first eight verses of Romans chapter 5. Feel free to follow along in your own version. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Paul wrote this, he said, "...therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand." And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, as I mentioned, I'm claiming that the central theme here in Romans chapter 5 all the way through Romans chapter 8 is this idea of hope, having the assurance of future glory. Now, as I say that, I'm not claiming that there aren't other important sub-themes and doctrines in this section. There are, and there are a lot of important doctrines within these chapters, but the central theme that Paul's going to be driving at all the way through is this idea on the screen. We have a, a hope, an assurance of future glory, and in fact, Paul structures all of his writings in a chiasm that supports that, and that's what I want to show you here. Notice In Romans 5, 1 through 11, that's the section we're in. And I want you to think about it. Paul has just finished writing perhaps the most detailed treatise on justification anywhere in the Bible in the first four chapters. Well, now he turns to the benefits that have accrued to our account because of that justification. And so that's the focus in Romans 5, 1 through 11, the hope, the assurance of future glory. Now when I talk about this glory, what I'm really referring to is the glory of having eternal life, of having a resurrection, of having a day that we're going to reign with Christ and no longer sin against him. That's the glory to which I'm referring. Now, we have a basis for this assured hope. That's what we see in Romans 5:12 through 21. What is it? It's the work of Christ. Paul is going to depict Jesus here in Romans 5:12 through 21 as the new Adam. And because of our new representative, Adam, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the new Adam, because of what he does, you and I can be sure of our glory. Now, when we get into Romans chapter 6, Paul deals with the problem of sin. Romans chapter 7, he's going to deal with the problem of the law. These are problems that we as believers are still dealing with even in this age. Even though we've been justified, we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with obeying the moral will of God. And so the question Paul is going to pose there is who will set us free? Who is going to bring us on into glory? And the answer, praise be to God, is found in Romans 8, 1 through 17. Again, the basis of our assurance is the work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who was given to us as a result of Christ's work. And again, that's the basis for our assurance, our hope of glory. Well, then what Paul does from there is he returns to the hope The assurance of future glory that we have. Dear brothers and sisters, this whole section from Romans 5 all the way through Romans 8 is Paul's way of saying to you because you believed in Jesus Christ, you have great benefits coming to you. You're going all the way to glory. Now, in particular, this morning, in Romans 5, the first eight verses, Paul is going to tell us that we should absolutely revel and rejoice in this coming glory, but. He's also going to tell us that we should rejoice in our present day trials and temptations, the tribulations of life. Why? Because we're going to find out that God is using them to build us in the faith so that you and I will persevere unto glory. So we can rejoice in the coming glory, but we also can rejoice in the present trials. That's Paul's theme here this morning. So we begin in the first two verses where Paul says that we should rejoice in the future glory. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, dear ones, everyone notice that Paul begins with a therefore. And what is the therefore, therefore? That's what we should be asking, right? Well, it's there because Paul wants to give us a summary of, of what has happened to us in the first four chapters of Romans now what has happened well we have been justified by faith and literally the participle you could render it having been justified by faith that's what happened in the first four chapters and so now what Paul is going to show us is that because we've been justified there are all these magnificent benefits that have accrued to our account and here he is going to list three of them notice the three benefits that he lists Number one, we have peace with God, that's huge. Number two, we have also obtained access into His grace. Number three, notice in the bold, we have the hope of the glory of God. And the reason I bolded that last one is because that's the dominant theme throughout this entire section, the hope of future glory. Now, let's take each of these one by one, they're very significant. Let's talk about having peace with God. What does it mean to have peace with God? Well, it's very simple in one sense, but I would say that there's three concepts involved with it. Number one, and most importantly, you and I are no, mo- no longer enemies of the Holy One of Israel. When we trusted in Jesus Christ, the wrath was averted. That is wonderful news. Dear brothers and sisters, there's no greater pressing issue that affects every single person than to be saved from the wrath of God. Think about Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18 said, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then what God did is he showed that he would hand people over to their own evil desires. So much so that in Romans 2.5, we learn that all those outside of Christ are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. They're storing up wrath with interest that will be accrued on the day of judgment. And they'll be answering for it. So, I remember Bob telling a story when he was in seminary, and in the seminary class, Bob will tell you outside of this, I'm sure, more detail, but the gist of it is they were talking about how to be relevant. And Bob raised his hand, he said, well, since when is it irrelevant to be saved from the wrath of God? Dear ones, it is the most relevant and pressing question. Because of what Jesus did, the wrath of God is no longer under you. Now, that's putting the peace of God negatively. The peace of God can also be put positively. In some sense, the peace of God can be seen synonymous with God's grace as unmerited favor. In fact, listen to how that's stated, the peace of God, in a positive way in Numbers 6, 24 through 26. Remember, this is the benediction that Aaron was to pronounce upon the people of God. Numbers 6, 24 through 26, he was commanded to tell them this. He says, may Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So notice there, peace is synonymous with God's favor. It's not just we're no longer enemies. He is favorable towards you. Now, the final element of having peace with God is that it implies one day, because of God's promise, we're going to have peace in our world. Where do we see this promise? Well, think about Isaiah chapter 2. The prophet Isaiah promises that one day the swords are going to be beat into plowshares, And the spears into pruning hooks. And war will be learned no more. Right? Why? Because there's going to be peace in our world. Because God the Messiah is going to be reigning over the world. And that's what we looked at last week a little bit when we read Isaiah 9. Remember Isaiah 9, 6? Unto us a child is given. Unto us a son is born. And the government is going to be upon his shoulders. And what's his name? Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Eternal father. Prince of what? What? Prince of Peace. Why? Well, it goes on to say that of the increase of his government, this is Isaiah 9-7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The reason you and I are going to have peace not only with God but one day in our world is because God is going to rule. Jesus Christ is coming back. So, dear brothers and sisters, this having peace with God is a huge benefit all because we've been justified through Jesus Christ. Now, let's move on to the next one. Notice we also have what? We've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Notice again it says through him. None of this is possible on our own effort. It's all made possible through Jesus Christ. Now, notice the term where it says obtained access. There's a lot of debate about this term. Some scholars say it must be rendered introduction. Some say it must be rendered access. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Here's where the concept came from. The concept originally came from this idea of having access to royalty. And so I want you to think about what kind of royalty through Jesus Christ you have access to. It's not just some earthly king, but you have access to the king of kings, the Holy One of Israel, the one who created all things. That's the access that you have now in him. How exciting is that? So notice it says it's, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now it's not only that we have access to grace, but it's the grace in which we now stand because of faith in Jesus Christ. And so the idea then is that we as believers are always walking about in the sphere of God's grace. We stand in it. So wherever you go on the planet, you cannot be outside of the sphere of God's unmerited favor. No matter what the circumstances of your life look like, you're always in the sphere of God's unmerited favor. And what's more, according to Hebrews 4.16, you have constant access to the throne of grace that you can pray to the God who rules over everything so that in your time of need, you can find help. And what's more, according to Hebrews 7.25, because you live in the sphere of God's grace, Jesus, the Holy One, who is resurrected and is seated at the right hand of the Father, lives forevermore to make intercession for you. These are the benefits of having access to God's grace. Wow. Brothers and sisters, we could spend a whole sermon just talking about that. How exciting. And we're not done. There's another benefit. Look at this. One more. Notice he says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Literally, we rejoice can be rendered we are joyfully confident in. Now, why can you be joyfully confident in the hope of glory? Because you've been justified by Jesus Christ, right? Now, the hope of glory, the glory of God. What does it mean, the glory of God? Well, the glory is his kavoth, his weightiness. And we know that at the last day, the sun is going to be fully glorified. The nations are going to bow. But the promise to us is that we're going to be glorified with him as well. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment, how shocking that is. Isn't it true in Romans 1 21 through 23 that you and I, as sinners, were those before we were regenerated? Does it not say that we were those who scorned the glory of God? Yes. Does it not say in Romans 3 23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? And now we are going to be participants in the glory of God? This is shocking. This is amazing. This is stupendous. I'm out of adjectives. (laughs) I've got a low vocabulary. I don't have any more words to choose from. Brothers and sisters, this is wonderful. We are now going to be glorified, meaning we're going to one day have eternal life, a resurrection, and one day we're no longer going to sin against our God. In a summary form, how can we put the idea that we have the future glory of God to look forward to? Remember what Paul said, In Romans 4.13, of Abraham and all the seed who would believe like Abraham, what did he say? He said, they'll be heirs of the world. Brothers and sisters, what does it mean to look forward to this glory of God? It means you're going to be heirs of the world. All because of what Jesus Christ did for you. I tell you, it doesn't get any better than that. And so brothers and sisters, no matter what problems you're going through in life, I want you to consider these words and realize that all of your problems pale in comparison to these great benefits. Praise be to God. Now, as we say that, we have to admit there really are present days distresses, trials and tribulations, and Paul fully admits that here. So Paul is going to show us that we have to rejoice in them as well. And the reason why Paul is going to show that here is because he has to address a, a potential objection. And the potential objection would go like this. An unbeliever, it would not escape their notice that we as Christians suffer too. And perhaps they might even notice that we as Christians suffer more in this world because of persecution than the average person. So what Paul has to do is to say, well, that, that does not nullify the promises of God. In fact, the reason we suffer, as he'll show us, is for our good. God is going to use it to build our faith. That's why we can rejoice even in our present distresses. It's temporary. It's temporary and it's for our good. That's Paul's point here, Romans 5, 3 through 4. He says, And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. Now, notice again, Paul has just said that we should rejoice in our coming glory. That was the past verse. Now he says we should rejoice in our tribulation. Now, one thing we have to keep straight is when it comes to tribulation, there are really two kinds, okay? Now, think about this, and I'll develop this further in our application, but the first type of tribulation is what happens here and now during what I would say the church age. That's how I like to define it. And that's the trials and tribulations that we all go through, but they are temporary, and they are not necessarily punitive. In fact, they are for our good. But then there is another type of tribulation that only the enemies of God will be part of, those outside of Christ, like what I like to call the in the eschatological age. And that tribulation is not reformative. It is only punitive. And it is eternal. Okay, so remember, you and I are going to have part of the tribulations here and now. Now I'm going to develop that further in our applications. All right, now notice he says that the tribulation brings about perseverance. Now, what in the world is perseverance? If I were to put it in our vernacular, it just means stick to it And so the perseverance means this, that when you're tried under tribulation and the various problems of life, if you remain in the faith, it demonstrates that you're a genuine believer. You see, it's not just that we believed initially into salvation, but the elect will persevere in their faith. And so the idea of perseverance is God's way of showing that your faith is genuine when it's revealed through the trials of life. Now, what's interesting is once your faith is seen to be valid, notice what it leads to. It's called proven character. Now, proven character is exceedingly difficult to translate. In fact, I don't even like that translation because Mm -hmm. the term comes from dokime. Dokime is a term in Greek which literally means you've been tested and approved. So the idea here is that God brought you through. You're a believer. He brought you through these trials. And because you remained in the faith, He approved you. Not that He didn't know He was going to approve you. He knew that. But you're tested and approved. Now, this concept should bring back to our minds, don't glaze over, Romans 1.28. Because in Romans 1.28, those who are outside of Christ, the unregenerate, they were given over to the opposite, an unapproved mind, A depraved mind, adakimas. It's the opposite of this. And so you see, they were tested and they failed miserably. Why? Because they were worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. But you see, when you were tested, you remain faithful to the creator rather than the creation because you're in Jesus Christ. And so they were disapproved, you're approved. Do you see how that works? And so because you're approved, your faith has been shown to be genuine. It also builds what? Your hope. Now remember last time I laid out that hope is really synonymous with faith, but it's a future-oriented faith looking towards the future promises of God. So what God is using then our trials for is to build our spiritual muscle. Just as you got to go into the gym and do your bench presses, your squats, your curls to build muscle, God is using our trials and tribulations to build our perseverance, to build our hope so that you and I will persevere unto the end. He's using it for our good, all right? Now, let me give you an example from Scripture. Just jot this down. We don't have time to turn to it, but 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17. Just jot it down, look it up later. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17. I want you to see Paul as an example to us. Remember the Corinthians were saying to Paul, hey, how can you be an apostle? Aren't you suffering horribly? How can you be an apostle with God's favor and a spokesman for God? You're suffering terribly. Well, his answer is it's for his good. Listen to what he says, 2 Corinthians four, sixteen through 17. He says, therefore, we, and he's using the editorial we, he's really talking about himself. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but through our outer, excuse me, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Verse 17, he says, for a momentary light affliction, that's the same term as tribulation, Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Dear ones, in Romans 5, Paul is saying that same thing extends to all of us. All of the trials can be seen as just lightweight tribulations compared to the exceedingly great weight of glory that's coming. And remember who said that? The apostle Paul suffered, didn't he? He didn't just have to, well, oh, i got a flat tire today. That's the most suffering I've had to go through. But he was being stoned for the very faith. Okay? Dear brothers and sisters, it's going to bring us to glory. Now, we see next here that we have both subjective and objective proof of future glory. Verses 5 through 6, Paul says, And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the, whole, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, notice here I have hope bolded again. Does that show up? Well, it doesn't show up too good. I have hope bolded. Trust me on that. And the reason I did so, again, is I want you to see that that is the central theme through this whole section. What is it? It's the hope of future glory. Now, notice he says here that that hope does not disappoint. Literally in the Greek, the hope does not put to shame. And right away, that should... Bring to our minds the idea from the Old Testament. Remember where David says in Psalm 25 that all those who will trust upon Yahweh will not be put to shame. What did God lay in Zion according to Isaiah 28:16? He laid the precious stone. Who is that stone? It's Jesus Christ and all those who will trust in him will not be put to shame. So what Paul is showing you is because you've trusted in Christ, On the last day, you're not going to be put to shame. How exciting is that? Now, notice we have subjective proof of this great glory. And it is, in fact, the love of God that was placed within our hearts. Let me, in fact, read the whole sentence here. He says, the love of God has been poured out, out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, I want to take this kind of part by part here. First of all, the love of God we can render it either as a subjective genitive or an objective genitive. What's the difference? Well, an objective genitive would be that we have love for God. Now, that's certainly true, but that's not Paul's focus here. It should be a subjective genitive, that is, it's God's love for us. So right away, we should be clued in that what he's talking about is that we're aware of God's love for us. Well, notice he says that it was poured out. Now, right away, poured out should bring to our minds the promise of Joel too. In Joel 2, didn't God say he would pour out his spirit? We see it fulfilled at Pentecost, God poured out his spirit. And sure enough, we see that the Holy Spirit is involved with us knowing the love of God. So that's the next phrase. Notice it's within our hearts, through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. Now, here's where the trouble can arise. Notice it says that it's within our hearts. Realize that the heart, in both the Old and the New Testament, is not simply the seat for emotions. You see, when you and I use heart, in our American vernacular, we're typically thinking of emotions. Uh, Oh, he's got a lot of heart, right? Um, Boy, um, the girlfriend gave away her heart. We're always thinking emotionally. But in both the Old and the New Testament, it is the center of the inner person. Yes, it has to do with emotions, but it also has to do with one's mind, our thoughts, our intellect, our will. Now, I'm showing you that because I want you to realize that it's not just that we have an emotional response, but we have a cognitive response. And what I want you to see is that the way the Holy Spirit, yes, we subjectively believe, and therefore we subjectively have proof of this love, but it's objectively through the Word of God. So I want you to see how 1 Corinthians chapter 2, turn your Bibles to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, help, understand, help us understand what Paul is saying here. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And what I want you to see is that the Holy Spirit works on the whole person through the word. So yes, we subjectively believe and know that God loves us, but it's based on the objective word. This isn't just feelings. It's cognitive in the word. Now, I'm going to give you evidence of that from 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 13. That's going to help us interpret what Paul's saying here. Now, as we're going to read 1 Corinthians 2, here's the issue. Paul is dealing with Corinthian Christians who are calling themselves spiritual, but ironically, they're denying key components of the gospel, including the resurrection, etc. So listen to what he has to tell them. 1 Corinthians two eleven through 13, he says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So, stop there. Verse 11, what Paul is saying is simply this like knows like. The inner being of man knows man. The inner, the the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, knows God. Okay, so who knows God? Well, the Holy Spirit does. So, the only way that any of us can know anything about God is because He revealed it to us by His Spirit, but it's through His Word. It's not outside of the Word. It's through his word. Now we know he's talking about the Holy Spirit, because notice in verse 12, he says, "Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God." Now stop there. who's that? That's the Holy Spirit. The very spirit that Paul says in Romans 5 was given to us. So it's the same concept. Now, notice how does the spirit work? What we're going to see is that he works through the word. Notice the next clause of verse 12. There's a purpose statement. It's so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Notice it says that we may know, not that we may feel, oida, knowledge. We can know the things that are freely given to us by God. Well, isn't one of the things that was freely given to us by God his love? In fact, I would say God's love is what encapsulates everything that God has given to us. So what Paul is saying is that we may know the love given to us by God, is he not? So we can know it. It's not just that we feel it, but we know it. Now, notice how he appeals to the word. He says, which things, verse 13, we, the apostle, also speak. What does he speak? It's the word of God. And he says, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Paul's point here is that it is through the word of God that the Holy Spirit brings to us Christ And the knowledge of the love of God. And I think that that's how we have to understand this passage. So yes, we subjectively believe this and know that God loves us. But even there, it's based on objective words that were given to us by the Spirit through the Word of God. It's the Word of God, dear brothers and sisters, that our knowledge of the love of God comes from. Now, we also have in the text itself an objective way of knowing about this love. Notice in verse 6, it says, For... Now, that four is there as an explanatory four. It's showing us how else we can know the love of God. He says "For while we were still helpless, meaning we were still in our sins, dead in our trespasses. He says at the right time, not chronologically, kairos time, the significant time in God's redemptive calendar, what did he do? Christ died for the ungodly. How do you and I objectively know that God loved? loves us? Because Christ died for the ungodly. The gospel of Jesus Christ is objective proof that God loves you. And because he loves you, you're going to go to glory. That's the objective proof. How do you know you're going to go to glory? Because Jesus Christ died for us. That's the objective proof that we have that in fact glory is certain for us. In fact, now Paul doubles down In verses 7 through 8, he shows that, yes, Christ dying for us is God's supreme act of love. Verses 7 through 8, he says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If I could summarize verse 7, what Paul is saying is that the best humanity can offer is that perhaps a person would die for someone they perceive to be a good and righteous person. But God's love is so much greater that he's willing to die for the completely wicked, those who are complete sinners and worthy of only damnation. It's those that Christ died for. Now, notice the phrase, Christ died for us. You have the substitutionary atonement right here. Jesus Christ is the just. We, the us, is the unjust. Notice the for. This is a little nerdy, but we got to get it down. The for is the preposition who pair. Who pair can be rendered on behalf of. Okay, so literally you could say Christ died on behalf of us. That's the substitutionary atonement. And I'm laboring this point because when I was in seminary, I would have these men who would have suits on. They're well-paid. They have pensions. And they would come into the class and say, look, this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, it's just one theory among many others out there. No, dear ones, the substitutionary atonement is not one theory among many. It is what the Bible teaches. And anyone who tells you it's only one theory among many, there's two options. Either they're ignorant of Scripture and they shouldn't be getting a paycheck, or they're lying to you. Why? Mark 10, 45, doesn't Jesus say, I did not come to be served but to serve and to give my life a ransom for, auntie is the preposition there, on behalf of the many, that's substitution. 1 Peter three eighteen. he died the just for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God. Second Corinthians 5.21, The Father made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's all over the place. So what's this nonsense that, it, well, it's only one theory among many? No, it's what the Bible teaches. And it is the greatest act of love that has ever been displayed. Jesus Christ the righteous being the substitute so that you and I could go free. Brothers and sisters, I'm so happy to see our evangelists go out. And I want you to realize that as you're proclaiming the gospel of Christ, you're giving the greatest love that any person could give. And you need to know that, that when you're out giving the gospel, it's not that you're intolerant, it's that you're loving. Let me tell you a story to illustrate the issue. Years ago, I had just begun at TCF. I was doing the Sunday school. Bob was preaching. Well, one Sunday I had to have the Sunday off because I was invited to a church in Wyzetta, to do their Sunday school. Well, I thought, what should I do? Well, I'll talk about the gospel. So in the Sunday school, I brought people through the seed promise from Genesis 3.15, and I showed all the way through the Bible how it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and I gave them the gospel. Well, about 45 minutes into my message, there was a guy in the front, and he had his arms folded, and he had a scowl on his face, and I knew I was in trouble. (laughs) And sure enough, 45 minutes into the message, he quit stands no more. And he raised his hand and, of course, I called on him right away. And he said, I've been listening to you for 45 minutes and I have yet to hear anything about the love of God. And my response to him was Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is the greatest act of love ever displayed in the cosmos. How could anyone dare say when they've heard the gospel they didn't hear about the love of God? Brothers and sisters, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is the statement of God's love for us and it is absolutely the objective fact that makes certain our future glory. That's why Paul's putting it here. Ask yourself the question, would God allow his son Jesus to die in vain? No. And if that's the case, You're going to glory. Why? Because Jesus can't die in vain. And so, brothers and sisters, how do you know you're going to have glory? Christ died for us. How do I know in the dark days of life I'm going to glory? Christ died for us. That's how we know. Brothers and sisters, that's objective proof that glory is coming. Jesus Christ would never die in vain. That's what Paul wants us, I think, to understand here this morning. Okay, now, I have three applications for you here. Number one, we must learn to rejoice in our present sufferings because God is using them for our good. And I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, as your pastor, I'll put my cards on the table. I need help here. I don't like to suffer. And maybe there are some out here who don't like to suffer either. We have to say the word of God tells us we will and that it's for our good. Okay, so this is something I'm working on in my own life. If you're struggling with suffering, well, you're joining me as well. Okay, but we're going to learn from the word of God and we're going to grow. Number two, we must understand that our afflictions are only for a short time compared to the afflictions coming upon the enemies of God. I put that second application in so that you, you and I can deal with the fairness issue. Why is it fair that you have so many godly who are suffering and so many of the ungodly who are living high off the hog? Well, the reason it's fair is because our suffering is just for a short time. Theirs is unto eternity. Ours is for our good. Theirs is only punitive. That's what we're going to learn. Number three, The central point, our hope. Our hope of future glory is an assured hope, and it should be a focus in our thinking as believers. I would say it should be one of the focuses. Okay, now, let's, from there, go on to our first point. We should be those who rejoice in your present sufferings. That's what Paul taught us. Remember, let me give you a summary. Romans 5, 2, he said we should rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, 3, he said we should rejoice in our present tribulation. Why? Present tribulation brings perseverance, Perseverance shows that we're approved after we've been tested, and that builds us in our hope, which is our faith. It's for our good. And what I want you to know is that this idea of suffering and God using it for our good isn't some rare doctrine that Paul teaches only here. It's all over the Bible. So let me show you some other places where we see this. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Here's an imperative from God. Notice the imperative. He says, consider it all joy. Now, that's a great imperative. But notice what comes after it. My brethren, when you encounter various trials, what? That sounds difficult, doesn't it? But it's a command from God. We're to consider it all joy when we go through trials and tribulations of this life. You know, when I was a younger Christian, I had a friend who told me he was looking for an exemption clause on cussing from the book of Leviticus when you're working with power tools, right? (laughs) Right? And I tell you, this is an area that I have to work on, and maybe there's some here as well. But notice when James says that we encounter various trials, we're to consider it all from God, it's all joyous. And he tells us why in verse 3. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That's the very thing Paul taught us today in Romans 5, that it produces perseverance, a stick to itness in the faith. Well, then James just summarizes in verse 4. He says, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that, here's the purpose statement, You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, when it says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, does that mean you're going to have a Cadillac and a brand new home and you're never going to have any troubles? No, that's not what he's saying. It means that you're going to have a faith that will hold up until the last day. So it's not that he's delivering you from the circumstance. It's that he's making you whole so that you'll bear up, bear fruit and go to glory. That's what it means to perfect you. It's not that you're going to have perfection here or now. It's in the coming glory. He's preparing us for that. Peter says the same thing, 1 Peter four thirteen. He says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why? He says, So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Notice he says, To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ... The sufferings of Christ is an important phrase that we understand. Bob dealt with this in Colossians. In fact, I'll have you turn there in just a moment. But the sufferings of Christ should be conceived of this way. The biblical writers thought of Christ and his people in corporate solidarity. So, in other words, if somebody in the body of Christ, a person suffered, Christ is suffering. Now, let me give you an illustration that proves this biblically. Remember in Acts chapter 9 you've had Saul of Tarsus who was persecuting Christians. And you remember when Jesus encounters him, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? He doesn't say that, does he? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So associated with Jesus Christ are believers that when a believer is being persecuted or suffering, it's the suffering of Christ. It's the corporate solidarity. So, In the Bible, it conceives of a... Think of a bucket. And there's a full measure of the sufferings of Christ and his people that will happen until the glory comes. And that's being filled up day by day. And at some point, it's going to be filled to the full. And he returns. Now, we don't know when that is. But you and I suffer, not because we're trying to earn our salvation, but because we're with Christ. Now, turn your Bibles to Colossians 1.24. Let me show you where you see this concept. Bob taught us this when he was teaching through Colossians. And um, I'll just... Repeat the same doctrine. We need to be reminded of these things. Again, Colossians one twenty four. Notice Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's the sake of the church, as you'll see. He says, And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, some would say, well, there must be something lacking in the atonement of Christ. No, that's not the point. That's why we have to understand the concept. The afflictions of Christ are all the sufferings that Christ and his people will go through. And there's going to be a filling up of those. There's also a filling up of so much evil that God will tolerate. And we see in Acts 3 that there's even a filling up of those who will repent. He says, repent so that he may send the Lord Jesus. So there's a filling up of all these buckets And one day all the buckets are going to be filled and Jesus Christ will break through the clouds and bring us to glory. Now, in God's providence, he knows when it's going to happen, but you and I don't. So what you and I are to do is just realize that we are to keep on rejoicing during these times of trials. Why? There's a day that's coming when there's going to be a reversal. When Jesus is going to break through the clouds because he's had enough. There's no more sufferings of Christ. Okay, now that leads me to my second point that our tribulation is only for a short time. So if someone says, Look, how is God just? You have believers suffer and you have unbelievers suffer. Well, our suffering is only limited and it's for a short time. Let me show you. I like uh, diagrams. Here is my attempt at one. It is a simple timeline. Notice, for lack of better, you and I are living in this age. How clever, huh? We can also call it the church age, and we are undergoing sufferings, but our sufferings are limited. They will only go on so long. The vertical line represents the coming of Christ, his parousia. And so you and I, yes, we suffer, but it's only for a short time. Now, let me give you evidence of this. Turn your Bibles, and by the way, keep your Bibles handy. We're going to be using them over and over here. Turn to Acts 14.22. Acts 14.22, I want to show you that Paul acknowledges That yes, in this age, we're going to have trials and tribulations. Acts 14.22, as you're turning there, remember, Paul has just been stoned almost to death here. But notice, as soon as he comes to, he strengthens believers and he gives them the truth. Acts 14.22, it says that he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, there's perseverance, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So notice, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. We're going to go through that here and now. Notice the term must. Must is the divine necessity, day in the Greek. So it's the divine necessity from God himself that we're going to go through tribulations and trials, but it's only here and now. Notice he doesn't say that it's in the kingdom of God. It's through them that we enter the kingdom of God. They're for a short time. Now, let's contrast that then with the enemies of God. When the parousia happens, the coming of Christ... You have the last seven years that were predicted in Daniel, the 70th week of Daniel, which leads on into the eternal state. And the enemies of God will end up suffering, not for a short time, but unto eternity. It's not to restore them. It is only punitive. Now, let me show you evidence of that from the scripture. It's one thing to see it on my diagram. It's another thing to see it in the scriptures. Turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 9. Again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 4 through 9. Now here Paul is congratulating those at Thessalonica for their faith and that they've been persevering, even though they've been going through such trial. And he says this, 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 9, he says, Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions, and afflictions which you endure. Now, the term affliction there is from Philipsis. It's tribulation, the same term that Paul used in Romans 5. And he says in verse 5, this is plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Notice it's for our good, for which indeed you are suffering. Now, verse 6, he says, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Stop there. Do you guys notice the reversal? He's going to put Philipsis, tribulation, on those who are putting you through tribulation. There's the great reversal. You and I are going through tribulation here and now. He's going to do a reversal. God is going to put into tribulation those who are putting us in tribulation here and now. Now, notice how long their tribulation lasts, verses 7 through 9. He says, and He'll give, to, give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 9, listen, he says, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Eternal, Ionian, it's unto eternity. The ages of ages, it will be without end. So dear ones, you and I have to know that our sufferings and tribulations are just for a short time. In fact, Peter said in First Peter 1 6, in this, that's our salvation. You greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Our trials are only for a little while compared to eternity. One more thing I want to point out here in First Peter 1 6. Notice the if necessary. That's the same term that I just talked about with the divine necessity. It's day. D E I, if you're to transliterate it. And typically. In the New Testament, that Greek word has to do with the divine necessity. So what, Paul, what Peter's saying here is that you're only going to suffer for a little while if it's the divine necessity. Okay, so in other words, God is sovereign over your suffering. Why am I laboring this point? Because you and I don't want to develop a martyrdom complex. You know, where people go out and, by goodness, I'm going to go out and find some real trouble to get into. Why? Because I want to persevere through the troubles and trials. No, don't go trying to find troubles and make enemies unnecessarily, God is sovereign. He will bring troubles to you as he sees fit. Okay? He will sovereignly bring them as you need them. All for your good. Remember Romans 8, 28. He causes all things to work out for the good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So again, don't try to find trouble. God is sovereign. He'll bring it to you. One more verse here on this slide. 1 Peter 5, 10, he says the same thing. He says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ there's the glory again will himself perfect confirm strengthen and establish you brothers and sisters as you see in our dark day and age all of the problems where you have unbelievers thriving and you see godly men and women being persecuted realize that there's a reversal coming and our suffering is just for a short while it doesn't When we see the suffering nullify what we believe, it proves that what we believe is valid. Why? Because it's been foretold us in the scriptures before. So the sufferings of the people of God does not nullify what we believe. It proves what we believe is in fact true. Okay, let's go to our last point and get your Bibles ready in the book of Luke, kind of notched, because I'll be taking you through that. What I'm claiming in the major point that Paul's making in Romans 5 and all the way through 8 is, that we have a hope of glory. And that really should be a focus for all of us, meaning it's on our minds, and it, in fact, it, it impacts the way we live here and now. The hope of glory is what motivates us for righteous living here and now. And I want you to see evidence of that in Titus, one of my favorite passages. Titus 2:11 through 14, Paul says to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness And worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. Stop there. There's righteous living. Now, why should we live righteously in this present age? Verse 13, he says why. He says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds. Now, I want to focus on this idea of looking for the blessed hope, but I can't help but mention the Granville Sharp rule real quick. There's a grammatical rule in this passage called the Granville Sharp rule. And what the Granville Sharp rule is, remember the acronym asks. It's the article, substantive, which is like a noun, chi, which is and, in substantive construction. Anytime you have that construction, when they're personal, The two substantives are the same person. Why does that matter? Hold on, hold on. Because here you have two substantives. You have God and Savior. And with that, Granville Sharp, Granville was Sharp, wasn't he? He came up with this rule before we had computers. What he found out is that every time you have this construction, the two references to the substantives, both God and Savior, have to be the same person, namely Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus is therefore both God and Savior. It's not God the Father and the Savior, the Son, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. God and Savior have to be the same person, namely Christ Jesus. So the Granville Sharp proves in Titus 2.13 that Jesus, in fact, called God in the epistles of Paul. Okay, very clear attestation. Now, the big point, though, I want to drive home here for you is that look, we are to be looking for the blessed hope. The term looking for the blessed hope, looking is pros decami, and it means that we're to be eagerly expecting. Now, what does it mean to eagerly expect the coming of Christ. Do you remember when you are going to get married? Do you remember what it was to eagerly expect that day? Or the last day of school, for those of you who are unmarried, or whatever it is. There's a day that you're eagerly expecting. The Vikings win a Super Bowl, whatever it may be. But do you know that expectation that you're living in accordance with that? If you're being married, you have to, live, you have to get ready for it. You're preparing. You're about the business of being married, right? And it's in the same way we are to be about the business of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's coming for us. So prostekamai means that we are to eagerly await him, and what you have to know is that that is the motivating factor for godly living, and it's what the people of God should be about. Eagerly expecting Christ's coming in glory. Let me show you evidence. Turn to Luke 2.25. We'll start there. I'll just bring you through and we'll conclude. Luke 2.25, this is about the righteous man, Simeon. Luke 2.25 It says, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking, there's prosdecomi, for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So what did this godly man do? He was eagerly waiting the consolation of Israel, the coming of the Messiah, and the glories to come. That's what godly people do. It's on their minds and it's in their hearts. Luke 2.38, just fast forward. Thirteen verses later, Luke 2:38. Here's Anna the prophetess. It says at that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God, and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking. There's Prosdakimai for the redemption of Jerusalem. Notice what do the godly people do? They're eagerly expecting the coming of the King and the kingdom. That's what they're looking for. A turn ahead to Luke 23:51. This is all about Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a believer in Jesus Christ, And it points out here that he didn't consent to his being put to death. Luke 23:51. It says he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who was waiting decamai, for the kingdom of God. What do the godly people do? They're waiting eagerly for the coming king and his glory. One more passage turned to the end of Jude 20 and 21. Remember there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude 20 and 21. Jude is right before the book of Revelation. Jude 20 through 21. Jude gives these instructions. He says, but you, beloved, here's for believers, building yourselves up On your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously prodecami for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Notice what are the people God, people of God, to do? They're to wait expectantly for the coming of the King in His glory. That's the attitude. That's the hope that we have, brothers and sisters. What is your focus here today? As you go out the door, is your focus on your problems or is your focus on the coming of the king and his coming glory? You today, as you walk out the door, can be absolutely assured that the future king and his glory is going to be given to you. Why? Because Christ died for us. That's our focus. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you've made it so simple for us, that you've done everything for us in Jesus Christ, that in him we have atonement, we have righteousness, and because of his work, we have the future hope of glory, a glory in which we will reign with you, a glory in which we will have resurrection life and be heirs of the world. I pray, Heavenly Father, that as my brothers and sisters go through trials and temptations, That you would give them perseverance, build them up in their faith, give them hope. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would put the gospel upon our lips, that our other friends, family, and neighbors may know the greatness of who you are, and they may have forgiveness of sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.